At this time, we can have the children be dismissed to Children's Church. And if you would take your Bibles and turn to Ezra chapter 4, as we continue our series through uh, the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah, this morning we'll be in Ezra chapter 4. go to Psalms, you've gone too far, go a little bit further to the left, and uh, you'll find it, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. Just when we finish the series, you'll be real familiar with where Ezra is, just in time for us to move on. So, Ezra chapter 4, as you're turning there, if you would just keep in mind our family this week as we are going to be traveling down after church today to Cannon Beach. I know, suffering at the beach for the week. Uh, I get to teach at Ecola Bible College on uh, the book of Philippians, and so uh, we'll be teaching, I'll be teaching all week, and uh, so if you could be praying for that. Uh, I get to teach the first-year students, there's usually 50 to 60 of them, uh, the book of Philippians over nine sessions, and then I also teach the second-year students uh, over three sessions, the book of Second Thessalonians. Really be praying for that. That's a tougher book. And, uh, and so just be praying for those students, uh, that it's helpful for them and that it's clear. Also, lastly, there are two weeks left of 40 Days for Life. Two weeks left, 14 days. It'll end two weeks from today on November the 6th. Can I encourage all of you to prayerfully consider being out there for one hour? If you haven't yet, I know many of you have gone out, and I love it. And I know your life groups have gone out. Some of you, your life group goes out every week. You go out and you pray for an hour, and you come back, and you eat your dinner and fellowship with one another. I think it's been so fantastic. Many of you go out as a life group or a Bible study or a group of folks, and you're doing things out there that I don't even see that's not online, and I think it's wonderful. I've been really encouraged by how many people have been praying from this church and from other churches as well. But if you say, I haven't gone out there yet, and I just keep forgetting, you got two weeks, and just look at your calendar and be able to say, I can put in one hour out there. I really think that there's going to be a sense of, that was so helpful for me. We have no idea what God's going to do in using it to um, encourage others to be about changing their mind in regards to abortion or changing their heart ultimately to the gospel. We have no idea. We've seen some encouragement. We were able to report some of that this past Wednesday at the worship night. That was encouraging to hear of how God is bringing different people into conversations with some who are standing out there. But if you say, I have one hour I can spare in the next 14 days, I'm guessing that many of us can find an hour uh, to go out there. But if so, I would love it. I, don't even, I won't even know about it, I'm sure. But I think that there would be an opportunity for you uh, to grow in a way that maybe you haven't yet or to uh, be able to partner with something that is so much bigger than just our church, to be able to go and to pray and to pray quietly, silently, or with friends who are with you, that God would bring an end to abortion in our community and make it unthinkable globally. So I just encourage you, if you have the opportunity um, to be able to look at it, if you have any reasons that you say, I will not, and you're willing to talk, I would love to talk with you, not to convince you. That's not ultimately the goal. 
but ultimately just to be able to know more of maybe there's, a, maybe there's a blind spot I'm missing with this whole thing. Maybe there's something else that we need to be aware of. But maybe there's something else personally with you that I'd be able to get to know you better by means of it. So if there's something that you say, I won't go out there and here's why, I would love to talk with you about it privately, not right now, but privately at another time and be able to work through that and be able to pray for you or pray with you through that. Anyway, Ezra chapter 4, I think everybody's there. I haven't heard any more Bibles turning. So Ezra chapter 4, if you would stand with me in the honor of reading God's word. Ezra chapter 4, I was mentioning to my family in preparation for this that I was really excited about this sermon because it is a doozy of a text a little bit. You'll find out here in a little bit. So I told my family, I said, they're going to have to buckle up. So let's buckle up and let's get going. Ezra chapter 4, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, and Mithridath, and Tabeel, and the rest of their associates, thankfully they didn't, it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers." You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in, in it from of old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls are refinished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. So the king sent an answer to Rahim, commander, and Shimshay, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the herd of the king? Then, when the, king, the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshay, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Before I forget, I'm supposed to mention this before, there's a reception immediately following our service in the annex. Uh, That is to celebrate with the Higginbotham family, uh, the installation formerly of Pastor Bobby here as an associate pastor. And so come celebrate with us. Uh, There'll be some heavy hors d'oeuvres over there in the annex immediately following the service. Ezra chapter 4. This is quite the story. A number of letters that are given in there specifically, and even the author here of Ezra 4 says, I'm going to give a copy of it to you right here in in the book. There's a little bit of difficulty in being able to follow the storyline. If you read it through just for the very first time, I found this true of myself even in the last few weeks. But there are three incidences of harassment or opposition that are given in this chapter regarding the rebuilding of Jerusalem in its temple and in the walls. There's the first incident that is found in the first uh, five verses and verse 24. So the first five verses in verse 24 come together as one incident that is given here in the present day that we're looking at in Ezra 1 through 4 already. Here we see that there's opposition that is given uh, toward the returning exiles under Zerubbabel, who is currently the leader of the people at the time. You remember the last few weeks, just briefly, King Cyrus was allowing the people of Israel to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. He not only sent them back, but he sent them back with his blessing and some resources. He allowed them to come back and they began to build. And first things first, they set up an altar and they began to worship And they kept the feast days, the Feast of Tabernacles specifically, and immediately began as the people of God who had rebelled against him and were exiled out of the land to begin afresh, to worship God and say, this is exactly how God's word says we should worship, worship, and this is what we will do. And several times we looked at last week, they did it according to what the scriptures had said, or as it was written. They desired to do what God had written originally for his people with the first temple. And now being in the second temple, coming back into the land, they desire to follow the Lord in the way that he commands them to worship, to offer sacrifices for their sins and free will offerings before the Lord. All of a sudden, we come into chapter 4 here, and we have this asking the request of some people, it calls them the people of the land, that, hey, we see that you guys are beginning to do something over here, and we want to help. You can imagine if you are the exiles, and you've just returned, and you have some resources from Cyrus the king, and you're beginning the building process, and having people bring in logs from one area, and other builders and stonemasons come from another area, that the offer of help is greatly encouraging, right? You guys want to help us? And we're building this town. Absolutely. Come on in. Let's get some chili and some stews made up and we'll have some feasting and we'll all work together. This will be a lot of fun, right? You hear this request and this offer for help and you think, well, yeah, absolutely. And then it takes you by surprise when Zerubbabel says, no way. You will have no part in any of this building with us. He says that in verse 3, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. We alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. So here in this 
first opposition, this first incident, these first few verses, you see the people of the land are mentioned in Ezra 4, verse 1, as adversaries. Now, we mentioned this last week. There are times where the author is writing and giving us little clues. And last week, we mentioned that there was a clue that the people feared. The returning exiles feared the people of the land. And here in Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, it speaks of them as adversaries. So these aren't just people who come and make an offer of help. It's enemies. It's the people's enemies, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. Well, who are these people uh, that is mentioned here in Ezra chapter 4? Well, they mention that they have been there sacrificing to the God of Israel ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, brought us here. Verse 2 ends. So this king of Assyria brought these people as Assyrian, the Assyrian empire overtook the northern kingdoms of Israel they brought in people from other nations to come into Israel and repopulate, maybe to rebuild, maybe to be there as uh, servants of the land to take care of it and to give tribute back to the king of Assyria. But all of these people from other nations are brought in by the king of Assyria and repopulated with Israel. This fall of Samaria came in 722 BC. So a while before Judah had fallen, and significantly longer before the people had come back into exile. Here, all of a sudden, you have these people who have now mixed with Israel. And so there are different uh, types of ethnicities that are brought together. But they're also saying that we have also worshipped your God. So while we might not originally be from here, we have come to worship the God of Israel, and we want to help you. The Second Kings chapter 17 gives us a little bit more background information of who these people are. You might want to keep a finger here in Ezra 4 and turn over to 2 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 24. It says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. This is exactly what is being recorded in, for us in Ezra chapter 4. The king of Assyria did this. In verse 25, and at the beginning of their dwelling there, notice they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. And behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. The king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there. Let him go and dwell and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. That's wonderful, right? But notice verse 29. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth. We're just guessing at some of these names. Okay, folks, all right, don't give me a hard time. The men of Kuth made Nergal. If you're looking for names, though, for any children coming up, this is a place. The men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire 
to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places, who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day, verse 34 says, to this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord. They do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So here you have a nation who has been repopulated, who now comes down and says to Ezra, hey, we're here. We're the people of the land. We've been here for a while, and we, have, we serve the same God that you do. Ever since the king of Assyria brought us into Israel, can we help you build a place of worship for your God? All of a sudden, it's not just people who are saying, hey, we just want to help, who happen to be ethnically mixed with some of the people of Israel, but they're also religiously syncretistic. They worship a lot of different gods. So yeah, your God, yeah, we've been worshiping him ever since the king of Assyria brought us in. We also worship a lot of other people, but we worship him too. Isn't that okay? Can't we help you build your house of worship? The refusal of their help by Zerubbabel is not because the people of Israel knew who these people were. They were a people, though, who thought it was okay to mix religions, to worship this God over here and that God over there. Whatever is convenient, whatever land you're in, oh, we'll do whatever it takes so that the, well, in this instance, in 2 Kings, the lions don't come anymore and eat us. You would be quick to else and adapt to the laws of the land so that the lions don't come and eat you. But all of a sudden, the people began to mix all of these different religions so that the God of Israel, the God of gods who created the universe became one God within their repertoire of gods. These were not a people, as the author of 2 Kings says, who feared the Lord, but who merely kept, who didn't even keep his laws, but kept him as though he was a token God on the totem pole of other gods. They were a people who thought it was okay to mix religions to obey God's where, uh, obey his laws where they wanted to, and to not hold them when it went against the laws of other gods that they preferred maybe more, whatever is convenient. So Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the other leaders, to their credit, said, no way. We've come into the land and we've done first things first. We are going to worship our God in the way that he has commanded us. And we cannot have people who are thwarting all of God's laws, who don't care about God in his ways, and who are blasphemous in the way that they do this. You, we read through 2 Kings and it mentioned that they just set up whatever priests that they wanted. They didn't have the same qualifications that the scriptures had. It wasn't of the tribe of Levi. It was just whoever they thought should serve as priests making a total mockery of God and his laws. This is so different from, they're not just people of the land who have never heard of God, as though this is an opportunity for evangelism, which hasn't always been front radar for Israel in the first place. Remember, God's ways were very different. God was saying, you're going to go into the land, you're going to exile all the other people or deport them out of the land, by, either by killing them or by getting rid of them. 
when I bring you into the promised land. Now God brings them back into the promised land, and he wants to make sure that they're not all of a sudden religiously mixed with all these other people groups to where God's commands are no longer being kept again, because that's what happened before. Solomon had a thousand different wives, remember? And every wife had a different God, and all of those gods brought Solomon down, and ultimately his people, and it divided the kingdom, and it destroyed Jerusalem and the house of worship. It destroyed cities and nations and generations and people. And Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the other leaders are determined, at least for now, we're not going to let this happen again. If these people were following God's laws, then they would have wanted to have obeyed the laws of Moses more than anything else. If these people of the land were truly wanting to worship God, then they would respond differently when Zerubbabel tells them no. When these leaders come and say, we don't want your help, you're not allowed to help us build this house of worship to our God, this temple, for whatever reasons, these people would have said, according to God's laws, we want to love you. We must still be people who are here. What did we do wrong? They would have desired to mend their ways with them and come back to the Lord their God, right? But you notice what happens. The response of these people of the land, as they're called several times in Ezra chapter 4, it says in verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build, bribed counselors against them and frustrated their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, for years, most likely around 15 years, the work stopped because the people of the land frustrated their plans, discouraged the people, and made them afraid. Zerubbabel, Joshua, the leaders, stand firm. This is what God wants, makes a hard decision. And the people of the land, instead of responding in a way that they ought to have, if they truly worship God, responded in a way that said, well, then we're going to make this as hard as we can and impossible for you to continue. In no way is that the response of somebody who says, I worship the Lord God of Israel. Fulfilling the law of Moses and worshiping Yahweh in accordance with his commands would be more important to them, to the people of the land, than their stake in building the temple. But that wasn't the offer in verse 2. The offer was not that they wanted to worship Yahweh and build a house for him. The offer the people of the land was really bringing, which is evidenced by their response, is they wanted influence and control. We want to be the ones who are in here. We want to influence the decisions. We want to control you and how you're going to worship your God. The people of Israel had to be in a tricky spot. They needed help, wanted help. They need allies. But they also were wanting to do things right, as it is written. The last thing they want to do is bring in loads of helpers who will compromise the truth, change the mission, and lead them astray. They have come out of exile because of their idolatry and their rebellion against God. And the last thing they want to do is team up with those who worship other gods and who are willing to stoop to deceitful tactics to get them to, again, rebel against God and his word. So that's the first five verses. Then in verse 6, all of a sudden, Ezra, in writing, verse 6, speaks of another time of opposition. And the second opposition is listed just there in verse 6. It jumps ahead chronologically 
to the reign of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes I, who reigned from 486 to 464 BC, during the time of Esther. We remember this name, Ahasuerus, from the story that's given in Esther. And there's a second opposition, where a letter is written of an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And that's all we're told, because then the author of Ezra moves again to a third time of opposition. I told you, it gets a little bit confusing, doesn't it? It's like a Inception, a story within a story within a story, and you're trying to figure out where exactly are we? Well, the final incident jumps ahead even more on the timeline and covers a section of verses from four, chapter 4, verse 7 to verse 23. This is, as it says, the time of Artaxerxes, who reigns from 464 B.C. to 423 B.C., and is the present time of Ezra and Nehemiah. You see, if Ezra is the author of these books, he's recounting information in these first chapters of things that happened before he was ever a leader of the people of Israel, of things that happened 50 to 80 years before he even was leading them. This passage here in the third incident of opposition is the one that takes up the most space in the text, the one that when we read was the letters written back from the people to the king and from the king back to the people. You might have noticed, but when we read these letters, there was verses of formal introduction. All of these people that are listed, all of these names and leaders and governors and all of these things and references to the province beyond the river. The province beyond the river is sort of Judah, Jerusalem, and all of this land around it, which belongs now to the Persian kings which was taken earlier by Babylon and now by Persia as they have taken it. But all of these areas, these people are writing and the letter that's going to the king of Persia is, we all agree, basically, stop letting them rebuild the city. You do not want this. This is the last thing you want happening in Jerusalem is for this city to be rebuilt. So they give this formal introduction. They write to the king, give their introduction and their claim, and they lay out their reasoning as follows. Rahum, the one who is writing by Shimshay the scribe. I love that name, Shimshay. Shimshay the scribe, and he writes that the city is wicked and rebellious. They will not pay any tribute or tolls, and your revenue on an annual basis will suffer because of it. The king will also be dishonored if these people complete their mission and rebuild the walls of the city. So don't let them do it for all these reasons. Now, it's probably true that in many ways, and according to God and his standard, this city was wicked and rebellious, and that God did drive his people out of the land. But it's not why other nations came and destroyed them. But there is an aspect where there is some truth to this. There's also probably truth, it might be very well true, that this nation, when they do rebuild, won't send money in tribute or tolls. Annual revenue will take a hit by the king. But according to the books that are written, there's a lot of money coming into this Persian king. He owns a lot of land. The percentage would have been really small, but it's probably true that they would have lost some money. So some of these things are true, and yet Rahum's advice to the king is check the history of the place, of the city, and see for yourself. 
but it's written in such a way to slant the position against Jerusalem and the returned exiles. There is no language of, but the God of Israel has allowed them to come back, or the king of Persia, Cyrus, allowed them to come back. And so the king, in his response back, buys it, hook, line, and sinker. He read the history, he said, and he won't let it happen again on his watch. So he tells them they should stop the work that is being done in the city. And so Rahum and all of his other people do, by force, make the work stop immediately so that nothing else goes on. The opposition that is currently happening for the people of God in rebuilding the walls at the time has to stop, and it does. Verse 23 of chapter 4. And then without any warning, the author switches then to verse 24, where again comes back to the present day and says, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We know that verse 24 goes back to the present day that they're writing in chapter 4 because of the reference to the king who is currently king and who will come king. Whereas the other parts in the chapter, they're way past Darius already in the references that are given. So in the first five verses, when these people come and ask for help, and then they are rejected by Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the other leaders, and they all of a sudden make things really difficult for the people of Israel, it worked. And the people of Israel were afraid, and they stopped the work on the temple. They had come in with a lot of desire to do what God had called them to do, to worship God first according to his word that was written. And yet the opposition comes and they stop. And they stop work for roughly 15 years, the rest of the reign of Cyrus and going into the reign of Darius. They stop the work that is being done. The opposition that is currently happening for the people of God there is they're desiring to rebuild the temple. Ezra makes clear by the references to other historical events that will come later that it's going to happen again and again. In every stage of the rebuilding effort, there are going to be people who come and are opposed to the work that is being done. It is not always a matter of how we can get rid of opposition. As we look to apply this for ourselves, it's not always a matter of how we can get rid of opposition. Make sure it never happens. What path can I take in my Christian journey so that I don't come across opposition? But... The question is not how do we keep opposition from coming against us, but rather how ought we to act when it comes? Here, Ezra is showing that this scenario is not a one-off, but it's going to happen again and again. And you'll see this all throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. From this point on, opposition is continual. It doesn't let up. Jesus even tells us that we are to expect opposition Opposition to the kingdom of God is something we ought to expect. Jesus promises, actually, that his followers would face the same reactions and hatred that he faced. John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Therefore, the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. We hold to a different master than the world does. Our allegiance is first and foremost not to the world, to the culture, and to all of its gods. To every other idol that the world would throw at us all the time. But our allegiance, first and foremost, is to God and His kingdom. It is not to men or to nations or to institutions. That makes those who do not believe in God or who despise the idea of God to be leery of us at best and hateful of us at worst. But that's exactly what Jesus promises, that if they have persecuted him, and they did, ultimately they crucified him, didn't they? That they will persecute you. Well, that doesn't mean that every one of us will be persecuted to the point of crucifixion like Jesus was, but that it could. The enemy here in Ezra chapter 4, the adversaries, the people of the land, won. They won for a time. For 15 years, they stopped the work. We'll see in the chapters to come the heroic bravery that the leaders of Israel come and reestablish the work that is to be done. And just a spoiler alert, it gets done, and they rebuild the temple. But here, right now, it seems as though, and they have, the opposition has won. It worked. The work stopped for 15 years. That's a long time. What is the people of Israel doing for 15 years when they're worshiping? Continuing to use the same temporary altar that they had built when they first came into the land? They came into the city wanting to do what's right, and there was all of this zeal, it seems, and all of this gusto. And so quickly it is stopped by threats, by cunning, by deceit, by bribes, by fear. Verse 4 states that the people of the land were discouraged. The people of the land discouraged Israel, excuse me. They discouraged them, made them afraid to build, frustrated their purposes. Literally, the word translated as discouraged is that it makes them lose heart or go limp. They all lost all courage. They went limp. They were made afraid to build. Their purposes are frustrated. But remember who had sent them there. It wasn't just an idea that they had thought of when they're back in Babylon, and they're going in their houses and in their land with all of these things that Babylon has to offer, these wonders of the world, and sitting there and going, you know where we should go for vacation? Do you know what we should do next year? Next year, what if we did this, guys? What if we created a caravan, and we go back to Jerusalem, and we rebuild the temple? Wouldn't that be awesome if we redid, did all that work? You can imagine an idea like that would fly over not very well at all, right? That all of a sudden somebody's saying, you want to do a whole bunch of work, uh, get a whole bunch of persecution and go back to a land that's been destroyed and a temple that doesn't exist anymore would not go over very easily. 
But remember back in chapter one, it was not the people who just all of a sudden made this idea up to go back to the land. It was God who stirred up their hearts and sent them back to the land. It was God who stirred up the heart of the king who said, I want you guys to go back to your land and rebuild your temple, rebuild your walls, rebuild your city, and here's all of this stuff to do it with. These people left, stirred by God to do it, and they obeyed. And the king, Cyrus, sent them back with his blessing, with resources. The king of kings sent them by stirring their hearts to go. And what stops the work? Threats. People who are all of a sudden bribed to make them afraid. Bribing counselors against them to frustrate their purposes. You know who those people are? They're bribing people to come in among the ranks and go, eh, this ain't going to work. You know the problem here. The problem is we've got all of these issues and building codes. And you know what, guys? Maybe we should just halt for a little while. The people who are being bribed and the counselors are coming in and spreading disinformation and saying to them, you know what? Those guys out there, they look really mean and scary. I don't think we should continue, guys. And they're doing whatever they can, bribed, paid, treachery, to make everybody stop, to be afraid, to feed into this. The reality is that the people of God forgot who they were and the God who had brought them there and resourced them. They forgot that they were on a mission from the king to do this mission. And they allowed opposition to become their mission. They allowed opposition to keep them from their mission. Opposition, if for nothing nothing else, should be another great reminder for the people of God to appeal to our king. To not look at the opposition and say, well, there you go, there's a little bit of opposition, we should probably stop what we're doing. When we are convinced that God has called us to do this. It would be like all of a sudden reading the Great Commission and somebody saying, I believe God is calling me to go to the ends of the earth to share the gospel with someone. And opposition comes and someone says, no, I don't think you should do that. Okay, you're right. I should probably just hang out here and just not do anything. Or you all of a sudden having a lot of zeal to share the gospel with your neighbor and your neighbor going, yeah, no, I don't think I want to do that. I don't think I want to follow your Jesus. And all of a sudden going, yeah, you're probably right. I should probably just kind of quit this whole evangelism thing anyway where the kingdom of God all of a sudden gets stopped by a little bit of opposition or maybe even a little bit more, where you and your boldness decide to share the gospel and someone actually harms you. Would you quit for the rest of your life, for 15 years because of opposition? Now, sure, it'd make you go, I want to think twice before I do that tactic again. It might make you all of a sudden look back at what you did and discern the type of conversation you had and your response to it, but it could be that nothing you did was wrong, that the opposition simply was present. But would we quit? Would we, like the people of Israel, allow ourselves to become fearful and afraid, frustrated in our purposes? Because all of a sudden we forget what it is that we have been called to do by the king of kings himself? Do we stop loving our neighbor or our family simply because there's a little bit of pushback and opposition? Talk to a parent who has had a child who has gone astray from the faith. Does that parent stop loving their child because there's a bit of opposition? Mom and dad, I don't want to talk about Jesus anymore. Do you think that parent is going to go, okay, I'll stop loving you now? 
I would gather that that parent all of a sudden loves them in another way, even more so, is praying for that child in the opposition more than they have before. You think? And so being able to see as the people of God, the opposition that comes, that Jesus promises will be there as a means of growth and equipping us to further strengthen us to do his will. D.A. Carson says that often it is a hint of opposition or persecution that will put backbone in otherwise timid Christians. A little bit of opposition is not meant to stop you, but could be God-ordained to strengthen you, to be able to say, look, now we can continue on in our mission. God brought us through that. Who else can stop us? And I don't mean that in a sort of arrogant way, like, look at us, here we come. We're going to beat you over the head with our Bibles. As though we're going to evangelize the world by telling you something you don't want to hear. No, we believe in the God who stirs the hearts, right? Now, the way that he has stirred us and opened our eyes to the gospel, we believe that God can do that to anyone that we come across. And so we lovingly and winsomely love our neighbor and desire to speak the truth to them in a way that is winsome and helpful, but also is true, and not mixing it with other religions, not giving in on the doctrine, not saying doctrine's not important, let's just get them into the church. Well, that's not how we want to do it. But being able to say the opposition or the pushback that is received, that God might continue to be drawing them and desiring us to be able to lovingly push through the opposition, that we do not stray from our mission because of opposition. We don't allow opposition to drive the mission. So we don't say, well, Let's only go to those countries that don't hate God or that aren't closed. I thank God that we have a young gal from this church who is in a country that I don't even think we're allowed to say the country she's in, doing an internship in a closed country. I thank God for that. I need to be reminded to pray more often for her and for her safety. But goodness, the Lord knows and the Lord has sent her and the Lord will be with her. But opposition should never drive our mission to where we only do what is safe and acceptable and pleasing in the eyes of the lost. But we go and we go as God has called us to do his mission in a way that is obedient and loving, that is according to his laws. Remember, Ezra, as they're saying, as it is written, we do these things. So as God calls us to worship and as God calls us to go, making disciples of all peoples, we do so in the way that Jesus commands of us to go, remembering the great commandments that are given to us to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbor as ourself. That's not going to allow you to beat someone over the head with the scriptures or do something wrong and sinful to try and accomplish God's mission. May God continue to persevere us in the midst of difficulty and opposition, that we might continue on the mission of the king, not being afraid of opposition, not steering clear every pathway we go of any opposition possible, not allowing it to drive us, not allowing it to keep us from our mission, but remembering that the kingdom of God is built within enemy-occupied territory. We will come across opposition at every turn. And so God provides scripture that reminds us, one, we are not wrestling on our own. 
but he's given armor, as he says in Ephesians chapter 6. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And he gives all of these pieces of armor for us as Christians to remind us that, one, we don't fight against flesh and blood. It's not the people of the land we're fighting against. but It's principalities and powers. It is against sin and darkness and death. We fight against rulers and authorities, the cosmic powers of the present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6 says. So he doesn't say stop and give up. It's going to be too hard. But he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So may we, when opposition comes, appeal to the king for help. Appeal to the king, the one who has sent us. Can you imagine if Israel would have said, hang on a second, you guys are trying to come against us. Let us write this guy. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. His name's Cyrus the Great. He sent us here. You ever heard of this guy? We're going to send him a letter and tell him what you guys are doing, and we're going to get this thing squared away. Imagine what Cyrus would have done. Come in with the army of a king to get rid of these, this opposition, maybe, but appeal to the king for help. He has saved you. He has called you. He wants you to glorify him and make disciples of all peoples, to love God and your neighbor. Discern as God is calling you to the mission he has called you to, and do so in confidence no matter the consequence or the opposition that may come. The other thing is not only do we appeal to the king when opposition comes, but we also want to look inwardly. And just as there are people who are bribed as counselors in the midst of this text here, we want to ask the question, am I the opposition? Am I the opposition of what God is wanting to do in our church, in our city, on my street? Am I the one who's actually opposing it? Am I the bribed counselor that is desiring other people to stop or divert around opposition, where it's not as much what God has called us to do individually or corporately, but what I see is coming. Oh, there's opposition. It's like you're playing Pac-Man. You're running, are you running away from the ghosts or are you getting the food? There's two different ways to play. One is the offensive and one is defensive. Are we constantly completely mesmerized by the opposition? Or are we saying God has called us to this good work and there will be difficulty that comes? Those are two very drastically different ways to go about fulfilling the mission of the king. And we know if we are the opposition by our heart responses when difficulty comes, when we're told no, when something doesn't happen our way, just the exact same way the people of the land, when we saw their heart response, oh, you're not going to let us build with you, are you? Well, we're not going to let you build at all. We're going to frustrate your plans and pull out all the stops to stop this work. They weren't interested in worship. They were interested in their way and their plan. We know by our own heart responses, am I the one who is opposing the work simply because I don't like it? I'm not comfortable with it. It's not the way I do it or I would think of it. Often God's ways are not our own ways. May we continue to go and beseech the king and ask for direction, advice, help in the midst of opposition. And may we be clear that we are not the opposition, the ones that are desiring to stop the work simply because it's not our idea, or our way of doing things. Can you imagine what would have happened in this chapter here if the, people of the, if the people of Israel would have responded differently? 
We can only imagine. But in the next few chapters, we'll see what happens because they didn't. And when they resume the work, what God continues to do in bringing about great joy in his people, seeing the mission of God accomplished fully and finally. Let us not be that people who either in the relationships that we have with someone in our family, on our street, in our school, in our workplace, or someone that we know, where we're opposed to that mission and we're stopping this work that could have been done 15 years prior had we responded differently. God has stirred in us and brought us to do his mission. May we continue to do so, trusting him in the midst of, in the face of opposition, knowing that God's continuing desire is to build us up, strengthen our faith, and continue to build his kingdom. Not stopping in opposition, but continuing to grow in the midst of it. Would, the God, would God give us grace to do just that? Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we are, we are humbled this morning in that we all stood opposed to your word and to your son Jesus. On our own, naturally, none of us wanted to be about your mission. None of us wanted to follow your will, your your way to salvation. We all had ideas of how we would have crafted redemption for our own selves. And yet, God, for many of us, you have worked to stir within us by means of us, our eyes being open to our own sin, realizing we are sinners. We deserve judgment and death. And yet Jesus has come and he the king himself did not merely just send us on a mission, but he came and he accomplished the mission himself that we might have eternal redemption in Jesus. And God, we are thankful, humbled that you would work to redeem us, stir within us a desire for the gospel, bring that to fruition through your son Jesus and bring us to know Christ and desire to do his mission and Father, would you continue to work in us to desire to fulfill your mission no matter the oppositions that come? When they do come, help us to be prayerful that we can at least know and discern if we are going about things as you desire and in obedience to your word, but also to continue to grow in our faith through the opposition that might come and to continue to fulfill your will for your glory and the furtherance of the gospel. And Father, we pray that there might be some in this very room this morning who they don't know you. They have never come to uh, have any desires to follow after you. And yet, God, they know. And maybe even this morning you are stirring within their hearts by the scriptures that have been read, by the songs that have been sung that, God, you are continuing to speak by means of your word, opening their eyes, that they don't want to be the ones who are opposing the God of the universe and his mission to build his kingdom. They want to be with you for all of eternity in your eternal kingdom. And, Father, would you continue to stir within them by means of your word and your people to continue to open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel. May they even respond this morning, calling out to the king, the one who controls all things, that they are a sinner, 
they have strayed from his holy, your holy ways and that they desperately need Jesus. Father, we ask your blessing on them, that you would continue to draw them to yourself, and that we would rejoice in the work that you are doing. Father, continue to work in us for your glory, even in the midst of opposition, whether it comes today, the weeks to come. Father, continue to strengthen us for the work that you have called us to in Jesus' name. Amen.